just like kind of unfortunate, but uh, whatever they tell me to do is mostly what I do. So I just follow my parents. First person I always go to is my father, um, just because he's um, been my biggest role model. Me? Okay, um, don't laugh at me, people, but probably Jesus. Friends, like, if you don't listen to them, they'll be like, okay, well, I'm not helping you again. If I don't listen to him, he'll say, oh, okay, it's okay, I'm gonna still help you anyways. And he'll, like, love me and everyone else unconditionally. Everything, you have it in your computer. Well, Google, because I can find answers to almost anything. Just myself and my partner, because she's the best person I know for guidance. You can guide it from somebody else. You could be led astray. Parents, friends, and uh, teachers. I don't know, I like the comfort of like different people giving me different opinions, but like at the end of the day, I always like choose mine. I usually go to my friends, see what their opinion is first, and then just go from there. Um, I just kind of look within myself, I suppose. Who else am I gonna rely on it? <laughs> Hey, um, this morning, if you um, have served or are serving in the military, could you stand and allow us just to honor you for a moment for your service? So, military active, we're proud. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, um, this uh, Saturday, the 14th, I think that's the Saturday, is that the Saturday, uh, is the Family Fun Skate. So if you grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, and you learned to skate with a boombox on your shoulder, hey, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You need to be there, but uh, you should bring your family, show up, it's a great time just to bond with some other people. If you have kids, if you don't have kids, but you like to skate, you should show up anyway. Uh, if you go out these doors right to the right, they're selling tickets to that. Um, just a great way to get to know some people. Um, I'm also really excited to announce about two years ago, uh, my son Robbie, the guy that was playing the bass up here, uh, turned me on to this uh, new artist and said, you had to listen to this lady. She's got a new sound and it's really great. Her name is Audrey Assad. And I started listening to her and I love um, her worship music. Uh, it's awesome. But we have arranged for her to come and do a concert for us on the 18th of December. Uh, so here's just a little taste of um, Audrey Assad. So she's coming with her band. Uh, tickets are going to go on sale next week. Uh, tickets are $10. Uh, at least I'm fairly confident they're $10. If I'm wrong, don't hold me to it, but I'm pretty sure they're $10. Um, and you can buy tickets starting next week, but we're also doing this in conjunction with another church, and I'm pretty sure this, this will sell out pretty quick. So you kind of should come prepared next week. We wanted to give you a heads up to buy as many tickets as you think you're going to need um, for the Audrey Side concert. It's going to be awesome to have them here. So we're in week six of the series that we're calling Foundation, asking the question, what's holding you up? And throughout this series, we've asked um, a lot of different questions. We ask, is there more to life than just this? We ask, who is Jesus? Why did Jesus die? How can I have faith? How and why do we pray? And I forgot to release, I did that in the first service too. Roots, you're dismissed right now. They all know and they just leave anyway, but Roots, you're dismissed. Uh, they're heading out. Uh, if, if you've missed any of the uh, talks as we've gone along, the last five talks, I would encourage you to get the CDs and listen to them. They kind of build on one another. Just a, a great chance for us to get back to the basics of our faith. 
uh, last week, if you're participating in Alpha, uh, Nikki talked about how do we know, how does God guide us? How does God guide us? And for me personally, this has been the most uh, impactful, profound talk um, so far by Nikki. So I'd encourage you to listen to that as well. If you, if you missed your Alpha session, you can go online and get that at alphatv.org. But how does God guide us? And I'm going to use Nikki's talk in a lot of ways as a springboard to what I want to talk about today. But what Nikki said was that there are five guiding forces, if you will, or, or um, factors that, that come into our life that help us to understand and know how that God has guided us. And the first is the Word of God, the Scriptures. And they're the primary place where God talks to us. It's the place we go back to and make sure that, that what we hear from God aligns with the Scripture. God's never going to contradict Scripture. So Scriptures are here. The Spirit of God is, is a big part and one of the guiding factors in our lives. Circumstances, and I would be careful, circumstances can betray you. But a lot of times there is multiple things going on at the same time that are all pointing towards the same thing. And it lines up with the scripture and it lines up with what the spirit of God is saying in you. But you need to learn to pay attention to circumstances. Other Christians, other people, the, the people who speak into your life is a part of it. So living out life in community. And then the one that he added to it, which I've never really thought about, but it makes sense, is common sense. Like sometimes it's just common sense what God is telling us to do. But what Nikki pointed out, and I agree with, is that God has a plan. God has a purpose for your life. And as you learn to lean into and, and listen to and pay attention to these five guiding factors, you're going to begin to see how God is leading you. You're going to have a clearer understanding of God's guiding in your life. But I want to ask a different question this morning. Do you want God to guide you? No, really, it's worth thinking about. Do you really want God to guide you? Because to allow God to guide you requires that you let go of whatever it is that's guiding you now. And maybe that's just yourself, or maybe it's somebody else who has influence over you. But to allow God to guide you means that you have to give God authority in your life. Authority in your life. And that's what we're going to talk about today is authority. And for, for many of you, just saying the word authority makes you uncomfortable. You're shifting in your seat and, and you feel a sense of discomfort. What comes to mind when you think of the word authority? For some of you, the word feels dark. It feels oppressive. Many of you just think of rules or you think of lack of freedom. Maybe the very word authority is wrought with images of control and power or possibly even abuse. But the fact is, the way you view authority, your acceptance and understanding of authority shapes your life. It matters a great deal. It has an effect on your life in a profound way. Because here's the deal, how you view authority and this level, how you view authority in the world, how you view authority in the, in the natural realm, is how you're going to view authority in the spiritual realm. So if you pay attention to how you view authority, it's going to help you to understand how you view God as well. There is a one-to-one -one absolute correlation. So understanding our view of authority is critical because it shapes us. So whether you like it or not, you are shaped by society. And you are shaped by how society views authority. The way the culture tells you to think rubs off on you and at some measure, maybe not completely, but at some measure. And the truth is we live in what's called a postmodern 
culture, and it's having this profound impact on all of us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, end up teaching from Romans 12, the first two verses. So if you want to turn to Romans 12 while I talk about the, the culture around us, so you'll be ready to, to read those when I get to it. But see, Romans 12 doesn't really make sense unless we understand how culture is shaping our view of authority, how culture is shaping our understanding of authority. So we live in what's called a postmodern culture. And to understand what a postmodern culture is, we kind of have to understand, well, what then is a modern culture? For something to be postmodern, we got to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean for, it to, for a modern culture as well? Because this is really a backlash, or some would say an evolution of the modernist movement, the modernist culture. Okay? So the modernist culture came into being really with the uh, Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment came, and if, if you're wondering about the Enlightenment, the, the Enlightenment came along right after the, the, the uh, Reformation, you know, and so there's Enlightenment. And for the first time, it really, in human history, it became okay, not just okay, it actually became in vogue to question the authority, to question the authority of the Scriptures, to question tradition, to question religion. Before that time, if you really question religion, you probably got killed. And so there was a movement that it was, it was okay, it was good, it was right to question religion, to question authority. Modernist thinking gave way to this freedom, but it also gave way to this incredibly critical spirit. Everything was looked at from a critical point of view. People became hypercritical. They became skeptics. We became a society of skeptics. On one level, the critical thinking was good. After all, like I said, the Reformation came, and there's good that came out of the Reformation. And, and the scriptures actually tell us, what does it say? It says, test all things, but hold fast to what is good. And the problem was with the modernist movement is, is the pendulum sort of swung. And in our critical and skeptical thinking, we tested all things, but we began to not hold on to the good. So we went from this pendulum swinging from this blind acceptance, so everything's okay, we just believe everything we're told, to this skeptical rejection. We are now enlightened now, and so we reject everything. The pendulum is completely swung. The fact of the matter is, in the enlightened movement, facts became the most important thing. And so facts trumped mystery or beliefs or faith for that matter. So in the enlightenment, everything including faith became suspect. And we see the effects on that, on the way we believe and the way people believe. The second driving factor in the modernist movement, stay with me because this will all make sense when we get to the Romans 12 passage, but the, 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 the other driving factor was the Industrial Revolution. The, the first time really in human history too where we moved completely away from an, an agrarian society, right? Where agriculture was it. And so all of a sudden we could produce everything we need. We had this perception of being able to provide for ourselves. We could make more than we could possibly ever use. And so with that, and think about this, even the Industrial Revolution, as, the, as industry was applied to the farming community, even in farming, we learned how to get around weather with irrigation and with chemicals and with all kinds of stuff, and suddenly the land could produce even more than we needed, sometimes to our own detriment. We have land producing more than it should produce, right? And, and we all know that there's things going on there. But so, so the Industrial Revolution gave us this illusion that we could provide for ourselves the illusion of being in control of our own destiny. 
There is a, a saying out there that says, I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. That could be the, the driving mantra of the modernist movement. Master of my fate, captain of my soul. Something else began to happen. There was a shift in the family unit. Suddenly with the industrial revolution, you didn't learn the trades of your father who learned the trades from their father. And the family structure began to change. In some ways, it began to break down. And what ended up coming from this is this incredibly independent way of thinking. Not only can I produce whatever I need, I'm on my own. I'm out there. It's all about numero uno. It's all about me. One of the great thinkers of our day is N.T. Wright. And he says the ungodly trinity of the modernist movement is one, I am my own master. Two, everything is objective. Everything can be quantified with facts. Everything can be determined with data. Facts are all that matters. And the third part of the unholy trinity, as he calls it, is that the belief that society is getting better, that society is progressing, that this is the natural evolution of us just becoming a better society. We're no longer bound to tradition. We're no longer bound to religion. We can figure things out on our own. The modernist way of thinking erodes the fabric of religion, and it was pretty catastrophic. But what also happened is with the modernist movement, the, the abuse of the Industrial Revolution, when, when this way of thinking began to not work out in, in the long run, came the postmodernist movement, right? So that's what we're living in now is a postmodernist way of thinking. Again, stay with me. I know this is sort of um, academic, but it's necessary for us to really understand how we think. The postmodernist culture could best be described as cynical, skeptical, but with one major difference, never trust authority. Never trust authority. Postmodern thinking says the people who are in authority are there at the expense of somebody else. They've, they've climbed their way to the top on the backs of somebody who was oppressed or beaten down. People in power are always there at the expense of somebody else. As a matter of fact, one of the driving forces in this modern culture is this thing called conspiracy. We are conspiracy addicts. There is a conspiracy for everything. So we even hear conspiracies that the Holocaust never really happened. It's just a conspiracy to make you think a certain way, or 9-11, it really didn't happen, even though most of us saw the plane drive into the, but it didn't really happen, or it was made up. And so there's this never trust, there's a deep-seated distrust in, in who we are. The modernist movement says, because religion is just another form of authority, it only exists to oppress people. Leaders are always self-absorbed, they can't be trusted. If you turn on the news, they capitalize on this. Everything about the news is to reinforce this thing that we believe that you can't trust leadership. Again, N.T. Wright says of the postmodern movement, he says, in a postmodern world, we choose suspicion over trust every time. Is this ringing true to some of you? Is it, is it striking a chord? We choose suspicion over trust and it's like a cancer. It eats away at the health of government. It eats away at the health of your family. It eats away at the health of businesses, of culture, and no doubt, it eats away at the health of the church. Again, in the modernist culture, facts were everything. But in the postmodern culture, it's not facts, it's feelings. How I feel is what really matters. Facts are sort of irrelevant. What really matters is, is how I feel. And if it feels good, do it. That's the 
mantra, if you will, of the modernist culture. If it feels good, it must be right and I must do it. This is part of the problem we have with gender confusion is facts don't matter. It's what you feel is all that matters. And we've convinced a whole group of people and young people coming up that it doesn't matter. There's, the facts don't mean anything. It's all about emotion. Emotion is all that matters. And we've bought into this lie and it's creating havoc in our lives and in our society. Why do I say all this? Because depending on your age, you are deeply shaped by the modernist movement or the postmodern movement. It is shaping your way of thinking. It is causing you to think in a particular way and it gives you a particular view of authority. It affects your walk with God. It affects your view of the church. It's shaping how you view God, how you view the Bible and how you view God's leading, which is in fact what we're talking about. Faulty thinking is not new to the modern movement or the postmodern era. It's the human condition, and it's been that way since the fall of Adam. And so Paul knew this. And so he writes in Romans the antidote to faulty thinking. He says, look, I know that your thinking is messed up. You live in a culture where the thinking isn't exactly right. And I'm going to write you this letter. And in this letter, I'm going to tell you how to think differently. So Romans 12, 2. Romans 12, 2. Paul says, do not conform. Conform just means to identify with, to be shaped by, to be the same as. He says, don't be the same. Don't think like, don't, don't be conformed. Don't identify with the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And the word transform there is the same word we get metamorphosis. And what does metamorphosis mean? It's to be completely different. He says, look, don't think like this, but be completely different than that. You need to think entirely different than the way the world thinks. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and his pleasing and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Pattern here refers to a way of thinking, a pattern of thinking. Paul says, don't think like the world thinks because what you think actually matters. How you think actually matters. All of your behaviors, all of the patterns of behavior in your life start with the way that you think and what you're thinking about. That's why being aware of how you think and what you think is so important. David Tripp says, you gotta pay attention to what you're saying to yourself because nobody talks to you more than you. So what's going on in your head actually matters. There's a pattern of thinking that exists in the social structure, but there's a pattern of thinking that exists in your family of origin the family that you were raised in, the generation that you were raised in affects your pattern of thinking. Where you were raised affects your pattern of thinking. Even the, not just country-wise, but the region of the country you were raised in affects your pattern of thinking. Growing up in a modernist culture, a postmodern culture affects your pattern of thinking. And the same was true 2000 years ago in Rome, Paul is telling the readers, there's a way the world wants you to think but not only do you have to avoid it, you have to think differently. You have to think the opposite of, you have to be completely different than that. Look again at Romans 12 too. Paul writes that if you think differently, if you don't conform to the pattern of this world and you think differently, you will be able to test and approve 
what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. The question this week is what? How does God guide you? How does God guide us? How do we know what God wants to do? How do we discern the will of God in our lives? And it starts with understanding our propensity for faulty thinking. It starts with changing the way we process information. It starts with thinking differently than the world thinks. So here's the deal, left to my own devices, when I am not intentional, I find myself in this trap all the time. I am a world-class cynic. I am critical and I am suspicious. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just telling you that I fall into this postmodern thinking very easily. I want what I want, and I want it when? I want it now. I question authority at an unhealthy level. I much more easily go to suspicion than trust. But what Paul is saying is, if that's your way of thinking, Doug, then it's going to be difficult for you to discern God's good and perfect will for your life. You have to think differently if you want to be able to see how God is guiding you. Can you relate to this? Am I just talking to myself here? I mean, the idea of, I don't know if we should clap for that. It is good. It's good to know that you're relating to it, but it's not a good thing, right? And so this fight against cynicism and distrust. I was in a meeting this week. It was fascinating. I hadn't really talked at all about where I was going to go in the, in the sermon. And, um, I think there were seven of us in the room and five of the seven people at one point or another said, I know that I can be really critical, but I know that it's, it's easy for me to criticize, but, and then they would finish the sentence. I know that I can sometimes be difficult, but it's, and, and it was funny because every time they say, I say, well, I got a sermon for you this week because I knew where I was going, but it was just fascinating that it, we actually know it in ourselves. We know that we can be critical. We know that we can be cynical. And, and so we start to just say, well, I know that's the way I am, but I'm going to say it anyway. And it just comes out in the meeting and it's just, it's just our tendency. It is so much easier for us to choose suspicion over trust. And it affects our faith. It affects how we move towards God and the authority of God in our lives. Go back to the Romans passage and look at verse one because verse one is a great setup for verse two. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because he wrote verse one first, so it would set up verse two. But anyway, Romans 12, one, Paul writes, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. In order to know God's good and perfect will for your life, right? In order to know what God wants, we have to give up our individualistic control. And Paul says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? That is a very spiritual term. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. You know what it means? It means to give your life to Jesus. It means to say, God, I'm going to follow what you want me to do, even if it's not what I want to do. It's giving up control of your own life and giving control to God and saying, I am going to follow what you want me to do. I'm going to be obedient to you. I'm going to come under the authority of God. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. The problem is if 
you're suspicious of authority, if you think you're a better judge, if you buy into the individualistic thinking, none of this will happen. You will not surrender to God as long as you think you are better at determining what you need than what God is. If you believe deep in your spirit that authority is evil and it's out to get you, you will never give God authority in your life. If you've bought into the pattern of thinking that permeates our society, Jesus will be of no use to you. But how are we to think? How are we to actually think? The beauty is the answer to the question is found in the passages we already read. So look at verse one. Paul writes, in view of God's mercy, through the lens of the mercy of God, with the understanding of how much God loves you by, by viewing the mercy and the love of God in your life through that lens. And then in verse two, he says, you're gonna be able to discern God's good and pleasing and perfect will. He's describing something for us. The hinge pin of everything we're talking about today swings on God's mercy, God's goodness. We have to think about God with a view of his love, of his mercy. We have to remember that God loves us, that he's a good, good father. We have to remind ourselves in our thinking, we have to remind ourselves that God is for us. We have to remember that his will for us is good and it's pleasing and it's perfect. We have to think about the goodness of God and his relentless pursuit of us through Jesus Christ who came and gave his life on the cross and died and was resurrected for our sins. We have to remember that. Giving God authority in your life is about remembering that God is good, that God loves you. It's not about oppression, it's about freedom. It's about remembering the gospel. Verse two of the passage we read in Romans, Paul writes that you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are to be completely different by renewing your mind. How do you do that? How do you renew your mind? Remember, renewing your mind is directly connected, discerning to discerning the will of God in your life. We renew our minds by viewing everything through the lens of God's mercy and by taking time to reflect on the gospel every day. Before your feet hit the floor, when you wake up in the morning, you should remind yourself that Jesus died on the cross for you. You should remind yourself of the gospel that while you were a sinner, God came and he saved you. And because he saved you and he, he renamed you, he made you a new creation. He gave you everything you need for life and godliness. It wasn't something you did, it was something he did. You remind yourself of the grace and the mercy that you live under and it will affect the rest of your day. It will change your way of thinking. It's a renewing of your mind that allows you then to give God permission to direct your life. Why? Because he's good because he loves you, because he sent his son to die for you, you can trust him and you don't have to believe that all authority is there to oppress you. When you remind yourself of the gospel, you remember the goodness of God and you can lean into God with an understanding that what he has for you is better than what you have for yourself. Romans 12:1. in view of God's mercy, give your life to him. Offer your life as a living, sacrifice because he can be trusted. Don't think like the world thinks. Trust in a father that loves you beyond your wildest imagination. Look, we all have a tendency to fall into poor patterns of thinking. 
In fact, this isn't anything new. It is the story of scripture. If you go back through the scriptures and just think about what I've talked about this morning, think about all the characters you know that you learned in Sunday school that you've learned recently. Think of Adam and Eve, David, Solomon, Jonah. I could list more and more of the characters of the Bible who fell into a poor pattern of thinking that resulted in a catastrophic decision in their life. In every case, when you stop and you think about it, in every case, they lost sight of the love of the Father. They stopped seeing God through his mercy and his love. They were not thinking about the good things God had done in their lives and the good thing God had promised to do in their lives. They came into faulty thinking and they took matters into their own, sta- own hands and they created catastrophes. If you continue to think like the world thinks, you will not discern God's good and pleasing and perfect will in your life. If you do not view God through the lens of his mercy, you will not surrender control to him. You will never give him authority in your life. There's another huge factor, factor that shapes our pattern of thinking. And with the little bit of time we have remaining, I wanna give you maybe a new and a different way to view the word authority. Uh, this is something I've been thinking about a lot over the last few months. And uh, it's, it's new for me as well. But it's important that you get this because as I've said, your view of authority shapes your pattern of thinking and shapes your behavior. If you only view authority as power and control, then the idea of surrendering to it is absurd. It's scary. But the root word of authority is the word author. And what does it mean to author something? It means to write, to create, to originate something. That's what it means to author something. There's another meaning that I came across, but to author something means to name it. To actually give something a name is to author it. Something very powerful happens in that. And here's what I want you to hear. What you allow to author you, what you allow to name you, is what you give authority to. What we allow to author us, what we allow to name us is what we give authority to. So I'm gonna explain this by way of an illustration. So Meg and Zoe are gonna come up on a stage and uh, I'm just gonna give you a graphic example of what it means to be authored, what it means to be named. If you grow up in a fallen world, then some of this story is gonna relate to you. I wanna make sure as a way of uh, being clear here, uh, this is not Zoe's story. Um, she is just here to help me make a point. Let me say that one more time. This is not Zoe's story. It is just a way of making a point. It's important that you get this. So for this morning, just for the sake of clarity, we're just gonna call this young lady Ashley. Okay, is that all right? This is Ashley, everybody meet Ashley. Ashley, everybody. And here's the deal, as we navigate through life, we encounter difficult situations. We, when we encounter those difficult situations, often a name is placed over us and we allow that name to stick, or maybe we don't allow it, maybe just sticks because of our age, because we're young, because we're impressionable. But when those names stick to us, they begin to author us, they begin to shape our behaviors. So when Ashley was young, she struggled to read and her second grade teacher who was impatient and sometimes very harsh would tell Ashley, you're so stupid. 
the stinging words of her teacher stuck and actually struggled throughout all of school. Sometimes she could hear the voice echoing in her head, you're so stupid. Ashley grew up in a home where she was sexually assaulted. And as she gets a little older, she begins to believe it's her fault. And she hears the words, you're such a tramp. That's being named. That's being authored. And she begins to live into that name and it affects her relationships as she gets older. When Ashley's 10, her dad walks out. And she believes she's unlovable, unworthy, undesirable. No one's willing to fight for her. And so these names begin to stick. They begin to author her life. All of this is taking place. And it gives her such a low level of self-esteem. She's brutally teased in school. Ugly. Clumsy. You don't fit in. Mike says, I don't like putting these on her. It's brutal. She grows up going to a second-rate school in a broken-down neighborhood with run-down and abandoned parks, oppressed by society, and she believes she's second-rate. She's damaged goods. How in the world is she ever going to believe that there's a God who loves her? No, really. When these names stick to us, how are we to believe that there's a God who has a plan and a purpose for our lives? All of these names began to shape her way of thinking. Her pattern of thinking are all formed in the way she's allowed these names to author her life and, and, and push her in a certain direction. And you look at this and we told a particular story and maybe those words don't resonate with you, but maybe the word failure does. Disappointment, weak, a lost cause, forgotten, unimportant, such a mess. You're a mistake. You're so irresponsible. These are the names that were spoken over us through circumstances or words that were set up that, that stick to us, that if we are not intentional about removing the names, they author us. We give them authority to determine who we are and how we behave. They become a pattern of thinking in our lives. Not all the names come when we're a child. You go through a difficult marriage, you're abused by a spouse. More names are stuck to you. It can happen when you're an adult. But here's the fact. Time does not remove the names. Names that were given to you when you were seven can still be with you when you're 70. And they become patterns of thinking that keep us from knowing the good, the perfect will of God in our lives. But there's good news. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Did you hear what I said? 
anyone who's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. God tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God tells us that we are knit together in our mother's womb. Scriptures tell us that we are a work of art, that we are God's masterpiece, that we are God's poem, created with a purpose, created for a purpose, created on purpose. We are the object of God's pursuit. The God of the universe who created everything is pursuing you personally. God died for you because you're worthy. You are cherished. You are adopted. You are empowered. And you are loved. Thank you, ladies. It's a powerful picture of thinking differently, of allowing words and names to authors. Who's authoring you? Have you allowed the giver of life to be the one to name you, to author you? Who are you giving authority to in your life? Paul says, Romans 12, 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is true and proper worship. To allow God to name you is to give God authority in your life. To shed the names of your past and take up the names that God has given you is to give God authority in your life. It's time that we all step into being the people God has made us to be and put aside what was given to us in the trials of our youth or in, even in our adulthood. One of the things I say all the time is the movement of God, the movement of God always begins with an invitation. And this is the invitation today. What is the name that you need to leave in this room? What is the name God wants to give you to take away? What is the name you've been carrying and in the stillness of the day you hear it repeated in your mind, you're so stupid. You're not worthy of this. You're not worth my time. What do you need to leave today? And what do you need to hear the Lord give to you as you leave this room? So we're gonna end a little bit differently. I'm gonna pray. And then I'm just gonna ask you to slip out. If you don't want to come down front and pray, that's okay. But I'm just going to ask you to kind of go out quietly and begin your conversation in the lobby. Stay as long as you like. Enjoy the lobby. But for the people that want to come down, we're going to have people down here to pray for you. So if you're part of the prayer team and you want to come down now, that would be great. But if you want to pray and leave a name behind, then we want to pray that with you. So Lord, we just thank you for your truth. Pray that you would teach us to renew our minds, to think rightly, to view you through the lens of your love and your mercy, to know that you are a good, good father and that you can be trusted and 
giving authority to you is to allow you to speak over us, to name us. Lord, allow us to receive our real names, loved and cherished, sons and daughters. We're not damaged goods. We're not second rate. Lord, help us to leave what we need to leave. Help us to take what we need to take. Help us to receive from you a new way of thinking. Help us to remember the gospel every day. Jesus loves us so much that he came, he died, and he rose from the dead to give us life. Lord, bless this body. Help us to be free. Because when the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So if you want to slip out, that's great. If you want prayer, we would love to pray with you.